Hello and welcome to WGTC Radio, the official podcast of entertainment website We Got This Covered. I'm Jonathan Lack. And I'm Sean Chapman. And we're here to talk about Studio Ghibli today. That's not stuff. Or is it? It is. Hmm. Indeed. All right. Anyway, we, as you listeners hopefully know by now, Sean and I are both located in Denver, Colorado, and one of the cool things about Denver is we've got a great film community here, and part of that film community is the Denver Film Society, and they are based, they are hosting this festival of the works of Hayao Miyazaki, Iseo Takahata, and the other masters of Studio Ghibli, as they like to sort of phrase it, and that's starting this Friday. We are releasing this on a Wednesday, and in two days the festival begins in Denver at the Denver Film Center, and I'm really excited about it because Miyazaki's my favorite director of all time. These are really some of my all-time favorite movies, and they're going to be showing them over seven weeks. They have 15 movies, all brand new 35mm prints, most of them uh, in their original Japanese with new subtitle translations. And so it's basically the best presentation possible of a lot of movies that are definitely in contention for some of the greatest ever made. And that's a pretty cool thing that we're going to have in Denver this week. Or these next seven weeks, actually. Yes. It's a long festival because there's a lot of movies to get through. So, it's going to be fun. Basically, what we're going to do today to sort of celebrate the start of this festival is we're going to take you through sort of the festival schedule they have out. They're going to be showing two to three movies every week. And we're just going to go chronologically through the festival guide and talk about each of the movies they're showing. And, you know, if you're unfamiliar with them, or if you are, we're just going to talk about the movies themselves, why you should see them, in some cases why, unless you're like a really diehard fan, you don't necessarily need to go to them, and just sort of have a discussion of some of these movies. We're not going into like full review analysis of each of these, because I think some of these movies obviously would warrant a whole podcast on their own. Yeah. Um, and we don't really have time to do all that right now. So we're just going to do a general overview, and hopefully one day in the future we can come back to some of these. Yeah, I'd like to. Yeah, definitely. So, should we get started? Or, Sean, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get going? Is there anything going on? Not really. Not much has happened since last since podcast. Last week? All yeah. right. Well, anyway... Let's get going here. We are going to start August 17th to the 23rd. The first week they will be playing My Neighbor Totoro, Whisper of the Heart, and The Cat Returns. Again. <laughs> the Cat Rises. Revenge. The Cat Resurrection. The Cat Strikes Again. Indubitably. Alright, let's start at the top here. My Neighbor Totoro. This is probably the most iconic of all the Studio Ghibli movies. Totoro himself is the logo for the studio. This was Hayao Miyazaki's fourth feature, his third in the Studio Ghibli canon. It concerns two small girls, Satsuki and Mei, who move to the countryside with their father after their mother is hospitalized. And she's she's dying, or she's getting better. I mean, it's it's sort of implied that she may not have much time left. And then at the end, you know, maybe she's getting better. That's not really what's important, though. It's just that, you know, they're going through this process. They've gone out to the countryside with their father to be closer to her. And basically, as they're sort of dealing with these heavy emotions, this big forest spirit named Totoro visits them. Or actually, they visit him more accurately. And he sort of takes and a life. kind of just bug him. Yeah, they bug yeah. him, but he takes a liking to him, to them, and Totoro is sort of there for them when they need him most, and at the end of the movie, he leaves because they're okay, they're healed at that point. But that's My Neighbor Totoro, it's mm. it's a fantastic film. Yeah. You just saw it for the first time, right? No, well, I wouldn't, I, I, I would say I saw it for the first time that I would actually, like, really remember. Yeah. I talked to my dad after we, because this is one of your, I think this is your number ten favorite movie of all time. Yes. And I talked to my dad when we were doing that stuff, and he said that we had seen it a really long time ago, but I didn't really remember. Yeah. Yeah, so... So I lent Sean the DVD, and what'd I you think? I really liked it. I think of the... I've, you lent me four DVDs, you lent me uh, Princess Mononoke, this one, 
uh, what was it? Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, and Porco Rosso. Yeah. And I would say out of those four, this one was my second favorite, just behind Princess Mononoke. Yeah. And, yeah, this one, it's kind of a strange movie because it doesn't have, like, a plot. No. At almost, I mean, it has, like, it has a plot that happens, like, three-fourths of the way that, like, constitutes the very end of the movie when they're... Looking but for it's, the little girl. it's still more of an event that's sort of important. Yeah, yeah, but it's like, but if yeah. there's anything that's constituted like a plot or that has like tension or anything like that in the yeah. movie, that's like the only moment where it does that. Right. For like almost the entire movie, it's basically just about these two girls living in this like in the new house that they moved into with like all the people around them. And to me, that's what's so wonderful about the movie is that it's just so well observed in the sort of the behaviors and actions of these young girls. Yeah, the two girls are really well realized, and that's what makes the yeah. That's what makes the movie really enjoyable. They have such big personalities, and, I mean, you know, we can talk about Totoro in a moment, because he's such a great creation, but even just, I love watching the little girls interact with their father, who's such a sort of, you know, we don't see that a lot in kids' movies, like the parents who are good parents. Yeah. And so I really love that Miyazaki just says, you know what, this is a father who loves his kids, his kids love him. And you can just have scenes with them where it's just it makes you happy to watch these girls interact with their loving father, and know that even if anything happens to their mother, you know they have him. And then the scenes where they interact with their mother obviously are beautiful, and that's where Joe Hisaishi and his wonderful score just goes for full tugging on the heartstrings. Yeah, and so really wonderful stuff there. I love the opening sequence where they're just exploring their house. Yeah, just in terms of like doing a great job of just establishing animated space. That's yeah, and, and just, like, they really, they they throw you right in with, like, the girls and don't, like, hold back. The girls are insanely over the top in this movie. Like, every, like, the little, little one, every single line, she just yells at the top of her lungs. Right. Which is kind of annoying at first, but then it gets kind of endearing. Yeah. Because May means well, and, and I think what's good is, you know, you can show the kids just finding so much to love in nature and in their house and all the little simple things, and then because you see them as such positive forces... When the sort of sad and difficult parts of the movie come, that's when they really hit hard. Yeah, it does does make that contrast in the later parts of the movie a lot more effective. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes in the whole film is when, you know, they're talking about their... It's it's sort of late in the third act. It's sort of what kicks off May running away and that final part. But, you know, May just wants to go visit her mother and Satsuki doesn't know what to do. And Satsuki, because her father always works, she's sort of been put in this adult role in charge of the house and she just sort of chews May out. But she doesn't mean to hurt May's feelings. Mm-hmm. She just doesn't know what else to do. May runs away. Satsuki breaks down crying. And it's just, in terms of just like punching you in the gut with like just raw human emotion, that's one of Miyazaki's best scenes. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I'm, I think my favorite scene in the movie is when Satsuki breaks down with Bachan. And yes. Like, like, and she just starts crying because she's been so strong yeah. throughout the rest of the movie. And Satsuki is one of my favorite Miyazaki female protagonists. Yeah. And he's got so many great ones, but she's just she's got so much personality and sort of strength that's endearing. And then there's Totoro himself. And by God, if you want to talk about like great fantasy creatures, Totoro's at the top of the list. He is awesome. I, I guess. I wasn't... I, that wasn't like the part of the movie that I, I really... It's kind of weird because... Totoro doesn't, like, the Totoro aspect of the movie, I don't feel really almost needs to be there. Like, in, in, in a normal sort of, like, traditional movie like this, like, that would be, like, the Totoro character and, like, the fantasy elements would be heavily important to the character development of the two characters, to yeah. the two girls, and it really isn't in this movie. Like, well, I, I, think, I think it's more about them having someone to sort of be there for them when they need it, and then learning how to be strong on their own, too. 
Um, and what I like about what I really like about Totoro though is that he's a really you know he's fantastically animated. He's really yeah. interesting to watch. I love his voice and all that. But Miyazaki restrains himself in portraying Totoro. He doesn't appear really until like thirty minutes in. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't like fill the entire movie no. with Totoro, which I think makes the movie better. Like I, I like I, I really like Totoro in the movie, but that's not like right. I don't really. I never really gravitated to him as a character, being like this is like what I really love about the movie. No, and I absolutely yeah. agree. I mean, and I think everyone who sees it, their favorite part is probably going to be something other than Totoro, and I think that's part of the point. Yeah, that's what that, makes the movie a lot better to me yeah. because it doesn't. Just yeah. like sort of pander out and like use yeah. the big fluffy funny character, and I think that's that's part of the movie. thing about the character's growth or the growth of the two little girls is that there is this fantastical thing in their life, but their arc is about learning to love sort of the everyday pleasures of nature and of humanity and those sorts of things. And Totoro is a somewhat a guide to that because he's there when they're just you know really troubled and like I love the scene where they build the giant camp for tree with him. Mm-hmm. That's just visually spectacular. But again, it's, you know, he's not the focus for them either. It's about them learning to be, you know, rely on each other and be strong without their mother and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really good. I talked about this being a movie, when I talked about my top ten, just about a really good movie about dealing with grief, especially for little, like, little kids. Yeah. And it really does that well. Yeah, this is definitely a movie that I feel, if, I mean, it, it's almost unfortunate because I feel, I, I didn't watch the entire movie with the dub, I just kind of like sampled some scenes with the dub, and the dub's definitely not as good as the original yeah. Japanese performances, especially with the two little girls, so it's kind of unfortunate that, like, you know, obviously little kids can't yeah. watch the subtitled movie, but this is this would be just like a fantastic movie if you're really young yeah. to watch, because it definitely well, feels like that's what it's trying to, that's the audience that's really Trump, like, wants to play for. Right. And, you know, Miyazaki talks about in this book I have, Starting Point, which is a collection of all his essays and writings from 1979 to 1996. And when it comes to movies like Totoro, what he says is he makes movies for kids because he believes the emotions kids experience are so pure that if you get it right, anybody can enjoy it. And if you get it wrong, nobody can, kids included. Yeah. And I think that's, I think Totoro absolutely emphasizes that idea. Um, when we were talking about the dubs, here's something interesting you might not know. I gave Sean the Disney Special Edition DVD of Totoro to watch, which has the original Japanese, and that's you know that hasn't changed or anything since it was released. But the dub on that is actually the second English dub that was produced. And it has Clark Kent Superman, Tim Daly as the yeah. father. Yes. Which is kind of weird, because the father looks like if Miyazaki drew Clark Kent. He <laughs> kind of looks... And he's got, like, blue pants and a red vest on. Yeah. So he basically looks like Clark Kent. It's right. really kind of weird. Um... But anyway, that's the second dub that was made, and that was Disney's. Totoro was actually originally licensed in the United States by Fox Home Entertainment and released in 1990 on VHS with a dub of its own, and it was the first, like, accurate anime dub, like, ever produced. It had no cuts to the imagery or anything. I mean, it was cropped for full-screen TVs, but that's, you know, different. Yeah. Um, it, it, it kept all the character names the same. It didn't dumb down any of the dialogue, and I guess that's a really good dub. I've never heard it, but I've always heard really good things about it, and I've heard generally mediocre things about the Disney dub, which I've done... I did the same thing as Sean. I sampled it, yeah. and I was like, oh my god, I, they're annoying. Yeah, it's like... Th- it wasn't like anything where I felt like the translations were really off. No. Actually, in a few... Actually, I remember in like... I think it was actually the very first scene in the movie where I was just like, oh, let's just like watch this again. It's actually weird. In the translation, it's just like a really weird, really specific thing I picked out. But she like... And like the first thing she does is like she gives her dad like this candy. And in the Japanese, she calls it a caramel. And then in the English dub, she calls it a caramel. 
but then in the subtitle translation, she just calls it a candy. Which is just, like, really... It's just, like, this really weird difference that I just noticed, because I just watched them, like, back-to-back like that, just to see the voices from the very beginning of the movie. I was just like... Why would you? Why would you change that in the subtitle translation? Like you yeah. made it just less accurate for some really bizarre, no non-specific reason. Yeah, but the Disney dub is not bad by any means. Yeah, but and it's I, just like it's just got that problem where it, it feels like they. This is actually with like all the ones where they c- cast like sort of like Hollywood stage actors yeah, and instead of voice actors, right? And it's like. And that's not always the case that a, like a stage actor would be is really bad in a vo- voice only performance, but sometimes it is. But but yeah, a lot of times it is, and it's like in general, yeah. just like I would just I just wish they would just give because there are like some of the more minor roles are played by well known voice actors like right. Tara Strong or John DiMaggio, and those ones are really really good. Yeah, and so it's just like why not? It's like you just like they're kind of like banking on people coming to see like Patrick Stewart and now sick of the Valley of the Wind. Yeah. Because it's Patrick Stewart, but it's like, it's like that just seems like a weird decision instead of trying to just cast someone really well for the role. No, and, and I don't know why I'm picking up Patrick Stewart because he actually was pretty good in the dub. Right, and and I mean this is something we should get out of the way up front. That's going to be my key problem with all the dubs in the Miyazaki movies is the celebrity guest casting. Yeah, it's like it's not particularly appropriate. No, because they feel like because especially with this one, like the girls just they just didn't sound right in the dub to me. No, what it is so what they did with the Disney dub is the girls are voiced by Dakota and Elle Fanning, who are two really good young actors actresses. And it's actually but, it's a really cool idea that you would yeah. have two actual sisters. Play and they were that age. Yeah. When they did the dub. The problem, actually, though, is I don't think they were directed right. Like, Elle Fanning doesn't get May's enthusiasm just yeah. right, and Dakota Fanning makes, makes Satsuki really sassy, and that is so wrong for the yeah, character. It's, yeah, it just, like, feels so, really off. The moment for me that, that killed the dub for me is where... So after May meets Totoro for the first time, she comes out, and she's really excitedly telling her sister about it, and Satsuki says... Or are you talking about the goblin from your storybook? And and in the Japanese, she's interested, like, hey, that's kind of cool. Yeah. In English, she's like, you mean the goblin from your storybook? Which totally ruins the rest of the movie, where she's, because of the rest of the movie, Satsuki is totally, like, enthusiastic about the Totoro stuff, too. Yeah. <laughs> Almost, like, weirdly enthusiastic about it, giving her, given her age. Yeah. I... Yeah, so <laughs> that just kind of like that just kind of ruins the second half of the entire movie with her being yeah sassy about it. Yeah. So Totoro, they're showing this weekend. I highly recommend it. I'm going Friday night. Can't wait. It's going to be really cool. I just can't wait to see this animation on well, the big screen. One thing I have to say about Totoro is that I don't know what it is, but like every other scene that they would either have Totoro or the really freaking creepy cat. Yeah. Spider bus. The cat bus is awesome. It's fucking. I don't know. There's just something about. I just like realize that they're like inside this creature and like it's hollowed out, and I'm just like, that's so disgusting. This is the most disgusting thing in the world right now. And that like it's got like the door that just like sort of expands out in its flesh, and they step in, and then it grows back. It's just like that's so disgusting. But it's like. When they get the big smiles, and they're like, there's like a dozen shots where they, like, the girls are standing in front of them, and then they have this huge smile, and I'm like, they're going to eat the little girls. That is what it looks like. It really, like, there are like a few shots where it's like, especially the first time they see Totoro, where it's like, he, like, is yawning, like, uh, May, like, finds him and he's sleeping, and he, like, yawns, and his mouth is huge, and he's got the giant teeth, and it's like, he's going to eat her. It's like, and there are like scenes with that, like every single time Totoro or the really creepy cat spider bus show up, it's like, there's like a shot where it's like, they are about to, like, this movie could go so dark right now. It could. It could go so dark. 
Alright, so that's My Neighbor Totoro. The other, uh, the next movie they're showing this weekend is Whisper of the Heart. This was directed by Yoshifumi Kondo, who was Hayao Miyazaki's protege in the 80s and 90s. He was the animation director on a lot of these movies, in particular Totoro, actually. And this was his first directorial project. It was written by Hayao Miyazaki and storyboarded by him, but directed by Kondo. And what's sort of tragic about this movie is a year or two after it was released, uh, Yoshifumi Kondo died. And it was the only thing he ever made. Hmm. And... You know, it actually, that his death prompted Miyazaki to change sort of his approach to work because Kondo basically had an aneurysm from overwork, from animating too much. Jeez. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. Um, but, in his legacy, he left us Whisper of the Heart, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. It just missed the top ten Sean and I, you know, did our countdown of. Mostly because I saw it fairly recently and I just, you know, I feel I need more time with the movie before I put it on a list like that. Mm-hmm. But it's so, so good. It's very different than most Studio Ghibli movies where it doesn't have any fantastical elements whatsoever. It's set in modern day, well, then modern day, like 1995 Japan. It's about uh, just a regular teenage girl and it's, she goes to school and everything. It's just in the city. There's there's nothing fantastical about it. Until she fights the giant robots. <laughs> I don't think there's a giant robot in most of these there, I mean, there weren't any that, any but, that yeah. I, I watched. Yeah. The closest, I guess, is the castle in the sky has a lot of mech stuff, but it's not robots. There's always someone controlling it or something. But even yeah. then, that's, that's It's like robots. just the one flaw of every Ghibli Studio movie is that there's no fights with giant robots or giant, yeah. like, Godzilla monsters. It's, I think I've read you this quote before in Miyazaki's book. Like, every other essay, he talks about how much he hates, hates giant fighting robots. Yeah, I don't know. There's something weird with anime where it's like, there's just yeah. that whole, like, kind of subgenre of anime that's just obsessed with that stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm grabbing my DVD of Whisper of the Heart just so I can look at it while I'm talking about it because it helps me remember things. Anyway, um, so that's basically, nice. yeah. Uh, the main girl, her name is Shizuki, and she's sort of in her last year of sort of regular schooling before she goes off to high school, which in Japan is, is a system where you have to pass these entrance exams to get in. So I think the story happens during the middle of her entrance exams and everything, but she's sort of depressed and and lonely, and she doesn't quite know why. And I and I think you know what they get into in the movie is it's just about. Um, well, let me back up. One of the things Miyazaki writes a lot about, if you read some of his essays and stuff, is he's very concerned with sort of generational divides in Japan, in that sort of actions of older generations in over-industrializing or over-building or things like that have left younger generations with either a lack of ambition or a lack of direction, and he thinks, you know, that's too bad, and that's a thing that's affecting a lot of young people, and that's really what's at the heart of Whisper of the Heart. Is the heart of Whisper of the Heart. Yes. Is Shizuki sort of trying to find her place in the world, and she ultimately discovers she's a writer, and she sort of decides she's going to devote herself entirely to write this this novel she wants to do and sort of, you know, discover her dreams. And it's a it's another movie where plot is very secondary. It's mm-hmm. just about sort of watching these people live. And she meets this this boy, and I would call it a romance, but it's still sort of a typical sort of Ghibli love thing where it's it's not a it's not sexualized in any way. It's about two people who find things they like in the other and are attached by that and what they do for each other. There's nothing, you know, romantic in sort of a typical Western sense about it. Yeah. Um, some a little, a little bit at the end, because I guess they kiss at the end, but it's sort you of... I guess they do. Do they? Yeah. Do, they, they do. Okay. They do. It sounded like you weren't entirely sure. It was like, that seems like, that'd be kind of weird. It's been a little while since I saw it, but it, um, anyway. Um, so, why do I love this movie? It's, I guess, when I first saw it, I said on Facebook, 
if I had, like, the resources and talent of Studio Ghibli, Whisper of the Heart is pretty much exactly the movie I would make. It, like, feels really personal to me, especially about sort of, um, for one, just the main character being a writer and sort of discovering her artistic talent through that. That felt really personal. Some of the emotions she experiences are things I definitely relate to uh, from being a teenager, and I think Miyazaki and Kondo capture better than any movie I've ever seen sort of teenage depression, where it's not, like, overwhelming, like, you're going to kill yourself depression, not that kind of thing, but mm-hmm. just sort of the sense of, what am I doing, where am I going, school means absolutely nothing to me, why the fuck am I doing this seven days a week, and there's this beautiful scene where she's just, uh, she's wandering around after school, she feels completely lost, she sits down on the side of this building, there's, like, a cat sitting next to her or something, and she just starts talking, not quite to the cat, but the cat's there, so it's sort of the focus of that, but... She's just talking about how she feels, and she's having a really hard time verbalizing it, and just time up feeling empty. And the dialogue is so beautiful, and the delivery is so fantastic. It's great. And this also has one of my all-time favorite just Ghibli sequences. There's uh, one of the running motifs of the movie is John Denver had this song in like the 80s, I think, called Country Roads. And it's a great song, and I guess it made a big splash in Japan when Olivia Newton-John did a cover of it. Like, the English-language version was big in Japan, and Shizuki has sort of latched onto that and done this, her, sort of how she starts her writing career, she's done this Japanese translation of it that she likes to sing with, like, her glee club or whatever. It's not really a glee club. That would be really silly. Yeah. Anyway, um, but it's just sort of a thing of her talent. And so she sings it a couple times during the movie, and one of the best scenes is where this boy she kind of likes, he's a violin maker, and then that's sort of his artistic passion. He starts playing it on the violin, she starts singing it, and then these other guys who work in this woodworking shop come in and they all play their instruments. I've never seen anything like it in animation, where it's all, like, literally they are perfectly replicating the playing of a violin or a cello, but through animation. I have no oh, idea how cool. you do I have no idea how you do that at 24, like, drawings a second. But yeah, like, that's that's something that always is kind of kind of bugs you if like if because I I play guitar and it's like you ever have a scene like a cartoon or an anime where like someone's playing a guitar it's just like they're just like holding the guitar and just like hitting the strings yeah and there's some things obviously they can't do perfect like yeah. every hand motion but like the bowing like for instance is like that's exactly how that song is bowed or something like you can just hear the violin part and see it and it's a really magical sequence and sort of a turning point for the character in the movie but. I, I could not recommend Whisper of the Heart anymore. It's so great. It's very underrated and underseen in America. It just came out on Blu-ray, so if you miss the screening, that's the best way to see it. It's a beautiful Blu-ray disc. The art is so great. It's got touches of Miyazaki in it, but Kondo was such a brilliant artist, and his own style is really apparent in it, so it's it's really powerful that way. Um, so I really recommend it. Okay. Sean has not seen this one. No, I haven't seen this one. What about the, I noticed there wasn't any like particularly huge names in the dub. Um, yeah, I, at the time these were somewhat bigger names. I uh, Brittany Snow voices Shizuki in the dub, and she was I think she was on a show like called American Dreams at the time, which had a lot of singing in it, which is probably why she's in this. Mm-hmm. One of, I have never watched the dub of this, yeah. and I'm kind of scared to because this is the one movie where I cannot fathom how you translate it into English. A because it is so rooted in Japanese culture, and B because so much of the plot revolves around her translating an English-language song into Japanese, <laughs> and you would completely yeah. lose that in English. Yeah. So I don't quite know how that works. But, um, yeah, it's also got Carrie Elways in it, but he wasn't. he's not really a big star anymore. Yeah. So they're, they really were hoping Princess Bride fans would come out Yeah, for I it. guess. Yeah, this just seems like a... <laughs> yeah. All right, the final movie they're showing this weekend is The Cat Returns, 
which is a weird semi-spin-off sequel sort of thingy to Whisper of the Heart. In Whisper of the Heart, Shizuki at the woodworking shop where this boy works, there's this cat that sort of captures her imagination. It's a cat actually carving, and it's called the Baron, and he's sort of a cool creature. And she has a couple, like, dream sequences where she's coming up with story ideas that involve the Baron. And The Cat Returns is basically a spin-off about the Baron as though he were real and oversaw a kingdom of cats that is underground. What? <laughs> like, you, like, when I asked about this, you, like, briefly explained it? And you kind of explained that it was, like, a spin-off of a fictional character mentioned in Whisper of the Heart? But you didn't go so far as to explain, like, the Baron and the, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, that's... That's weird, isn't it? That sounds like... Yeah, that sounds really weird. Yeah. Um, so The Cat Returns... It focuses on another... It's the same sort of setting as Whisper of the Heart, like modern-day Japan and stuff. But it's... Only with the Baron. Right. And so the the main girl... I'm gonna... It's, it's, her name's Haru. That's what it is. And Haru is sort of like a really, like, sort of pathetic young girl who's, like, you know, out of place and stuff. It's It's sort of like some of the same ideas behind Whisper of the Heart, but not done as well. It's not as fleshed out. This one's only 70 minutes, for instance. But she sort of gets caught up. She saves this cat from getting hit by a car... And then the cat goes back to the cat kingdom and reports to his cat overlords. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like uh, there's like a, in the Sandman graphic novels, there's a short story that sounds like it's like a really serious short story that kind of sounds like this. Yeah. Only it's really, it's, it's really serious and dramatic. Okay. Anyway, the cat reports <laughs> to his, it. Yeah, the cat. Oh no, the cat is actually a prince and the king of the cats <laughs> wants to reward Shizuki, or not Shizuki, Haru for saving, you know, his son and but the cats start like overdoing it with their rewards and then a kind of annoying Haru so she goes to the Baron for help and the Baron can like fly and do all this cool stuff and he sort of helps her escape. And then he fights a giant robot. Yeah, well she gets kidnapped Dog. and she gets kidnapped and taken to the cat kingdom and he has to save her. Um it's not this is easily my least favorite of Ghibli Ghibli's movies. It's got definitely some positive elements, you know. The the animation isn't fantastic like some of their others, but it's it's decent. It's interesting to look at. Um, I like all of the cat designs and stuff, although it gets pretty freaky sometimes with the cats who, like, stand up and, like, walk on two legs. Are, th- are there any giant, freaky cat spider bus monsters that try to I eat d- little girls? I don't think so. Okay. That's um, good. Yeah. So, it's kind of a lightweight one. This is definitely not a must-see, but, you know, if you're... Like, I'm going to see it anyway, because I've got to pass to all of them, and I'm just eager to sort of see them all on 35 millimeter and everything. So, you know... If you're bored one morning and, and want to go see it, you could. You could. It's not great. Um, I kind of think it would be funny to watch with Sean just time, sometime, and just kind of heckle. Yeah, it's just like it. Just like I mean, it doesn't seem like if it was just that. If like it was just a movie by itself, it doesn't seem like it would be that bizarre for like a Studio Ghibli movie. But the fact that it's kind of half spun off. from what you described as like this very serious, dramatic yes. sort of like teenage drama type movie, it's just like. It's Why? Weird. It just seems so bizarre well, that you'd make that choice. Well, here's some history. I it was originally. I think this was the ma- movie made after Spirited Away by the studio. So this is like 2002, 2003, and their original concept was they were just commissioned by some museum or something to make a short about cats, and they were going to use some of the cat designs from Whisper of the Heart. And I can totally see that as just a 15 minute short. But Miyazaki liked the cat designs. His younger animators were coming up with so much. He said, "You guys have 70 minutes. Make a movie out of this." <laughs> And I don't know if that was the world's greatest decision, yeah. but, you know, yeah. whatever. They can, after Spirited Away, they could do whatever the fuck they wanted. 
when you have more awards than you can like fit on a shelf, yeah. you, you, you have free reign to do whatever. So that's August 17th to 23rd. That's the first batch of movies. The second batch of movies, August 24th to 30th, is, this is a great double feature, Castle in the Sky and Kiki's Delivery Service. Those are both, uh, I should say they're not presenting these movies in chronological order. They're more doing it sort of by thematic or sort of age-related ties. Like Castle in the Sky and Kiki's are both aimed at like 10-year-old children, I would say. And so they're very much for the sort of the same age group. And they're both really good. Let's start with Castle in the Sky. Have you seen this one, Sean? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Um, it's a great movie. Its its original Japanese title is Laputa Castle in the Sky, because the castle is called Laputa. And That's a weird name for castle. Yeah. They don't call it that in English, because Laputa means the whore in Spanish. Yeah. Yep. That's why I said it's, it's a weird name for a castle. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Castle in the Sky concerns two young characters. It's actually one of Miyazaki's only movies that has a boy and girl protagonist. And the boy's named Pazu, and he works in this sort of industrial town as an apprentice. And Shita actually falls from the sky, and she has this amulet around her neck. And they become friends, and, and they're trying to find their way to Laputa, basically, and sort of save this castle in the sky. And the bad guy, who's voiced by Mark Hamill in English, which I remember, because <laughs> I have watched the whole dub of this. Um, and it's actually a decent dub. Because Mark Hamill's a great voice actor. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. That does he do like the Joker voice for the villain? Because that be... um not quite, but it's definitely yeah. more in that range than like Luke Skywalker, you know. But yeah, so he's you know leader of this like greedy group of pirates and things that they're that's trying to steal Laputa or sort of invade it or something. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen this one, but it's a fantastic movie. It's Miyazaki just in full on adventure mode, and he's really good at that. And it's just a whole lot of fun to watch. Um, it's got sort of a big mythology in it that's really interesting to get into when you just get in, into sort of this world and, and everything that's there. It definitely follows up on some of the themes from Nausicaa, which would have been the movie produced right before this in terms of industrialization and nature and those sorts of things. Um, but it's got great characters, so many great action set pieces and things. Really fun movie. You would really like it, Sean, I think. You should have so. loaned me the DVD. I you I said Sean take whichever ones you want. Well, that's the, then I said to this like, well, which ones do you think I should watch? And okay. Then like, I don't. I for some reason I thought you'd seen this one, but it's great. It's it's one of the things I love about these early Ghibli movies is the animation style before it, they were even touched by the thought of computers. They just looked so beautiful and handcrafted, and there's sort of this very round style to all the characters. Um, that looks really good. This is one of those movies with just a ton of detail in every frame because the designs of everything are just so crazy intricate. Mm -hmm. I really love stuff like that. So, that's Castle in the Sky. The other movie, and this is one of my absolute favorites, is Kiki's Delivery Service. This was actually the first Miyazaki movie I ever saw in the late 90s, I think. they released Disney released it on VHS in a dub, and it was, it's a pretty good dub, actually. Um, although it's got some weird things which we'll talk about later. But I watched it all the time as a kid, because like, my mom bought it for me on tape. At the time, I didn't know who Miyazaki was or anything. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was a cool... I'm like, why is this Disney movie so much better than all the other Disney movies? Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like, why is the girl not like selling her soul for a vagina or something, you know? <laughs> Anyway, uh, have you seen Kiki's is, Delivery Service? Is, that's the one the girl has a broom, right? She's like, a witch. Yeah, she, yeah. yeah, I've seen it. It's this one of those ones where I saw it so long ago I don't particularly remember 
very well, other than you, she's a witch. Yeah, you probably saw the same tape I did. Yeah, most likely. It's it's really great. It's got Kiki is one of his best protagonists, and there's a bunch of other great characters in here. It's just a joy. To, it's just one of those Miyazaki movies that's sort of filled with joy in every frame, and it's so much fun to watch her sort of discover this world. But it, it's another one that kind of like Whisper of the Heart, and later on Spirited Away to a much bigger degree is dealing with just sort of a ten year old girl who's trying to find her place in the world. And and I think it very much goes back to sort of that Japanese work ethic that Miyazaki and a lot of sort of masters of Japanese craft like to talk about, where employment and self-fulfillment involves finding something that you're not only good at but passionate about and contributing to the world in that way. Mm-hmm. And and that's what Kiki's sort of role is. She's, I guess, in this world, witches on their 10th birthday always have to go out into the world, find a town where there are no other witches, and sort of find a job there to help society. It kind of sound like Mormons. <laughs> <laughs> like I forget, I forget what, what what is the cold word? Do you have to you have to yeah. go out and like kind of like do community service in like a poor yeah. area of the world? I don't yeah. remember what that's called, but yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. kind of kind of sounds like that. Yeah, only with witches. Yeah. So anyway, she goes to this town and she makes a bunch of friends, and it takes a dark turn in the second half where she sort of she becomes a little depressed. She loses her ability to fly, and she sort of just has to start relying on herself instead of her powers and her black magics. She starts <laughs> raising the dead. She really, her only power is she can fly in terms of being a witch. Um, I guess they imply that some witches have more, like, powers, like they can make things and stuff, but with her, and I think that's what's great about the movie, is that it's not about her witchcraft so much as her spirit and her intelligence and her passion to do things for other people and sort of just being a good person. It very much shares themes with Spirited Away. They're very different movies, um, sort of stylistically and everything, but when you get down to it, where Spirited Away is about this girl who is thrown into a new situation and basically becomes the savior for all these people in the bathhouse, Kiki is sort of like that in the town. Um, really great movie, and I think it's one of the first that really shows just how deep Miyazaki could go with human emotions. Uh, this would have been the one after Totoro, so I guess Totoro was kind of kicks that off, and Kiki very much follows that up with the same sense of fun, but going even darker in the second half. You can definitely see a progression through his movies and sort of getting darker until you reach stuff like Mononoke and Spirited Away. So it's a great film. I'm so excited to see it on 35mm because it's got such beautiful art. Sean, look at the cover to the DVD. Isn't that not just a gorgeous image of the town? Yeah. And Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just, I really love Miyazaki's style. Yeah. For like... Basically everything, so... We should talk about that in more depth maybe at the end of the podcast. Mm. But, uh... So that's the second week, August 24th to 30th. I'm excited to see both of them. May have to do them twice. Anyway, so, the next week. You actually have watched one of these. Yes. So, it's good. We can have a discussion again. Um, this next one is... It's August 31st to September 6th. It is Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, or... Kaze no Tani no Nausicaa! Or... Why do you say it like that? And Pom Poco. But let's start with Nausicaa. Nausicaa. Yes. Sean, you just saw this movie for the first time. What did you think of it? I liked it. It was probably out of those four, it was my least favorite. Okay. I mean, I, I thought, I thought. I mean, obviously it's still a really, really good movie. Yeah. But I thought it, it just kind of, it just kind of felt like it almost meandered at a certain point in the movie. Like, it didn't feel like, it felt like it was supposed to be a really plot-heavy Miyazaki movie, kind of like Mononoke, but it kind of was more paced like a Totoro movie. And it kind of like threw me off. It was just yeah. like it was a little strange, but well, here's what I'll say about Nausicaa. It's obviously one of the most beloved movies in the history of animation, and people go crazy for this one. And I can see why because it's got such vivid characters and the yeah. And and I have to say, I really love all the designs on everything. Yeah, like it's a really I, I, honestly 
I, th- I think I like the how it looks more than Mononoke. I think yeah. out of all the four of them, I like how it looks the best. Oh, it's it's such a well-designed movie, and he spent so much time on this, but it always strikes me as a first film, and that's what it was. It was his first movie. He made the loop in the third movie, but that, that was, you know, a lot of that was him, but it was a TV show that he had not created that he was doing the movie of. But this was his project. He wrote it. He created it. And I think, obviously, for a first feature, it's fantastic, but it does show to me some of the growing pains of an auteur sort of finding his voice. Yeah. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just, it does, to me, it limits it from quite reaching the highs that Totoro and Mononoke and some of those do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always actually thought that Mononoke very much comes back around to all the themes of Nausicaa, but does yeah, them... Yeah, they, they have very similar themes. But does them with more maturity and sort of grandeur, and I think they're very good companion pieces. I actually would have paired these two instead of sort of how they paired them in this festival. But, yeah, I, Nausicaa, it definitely I do think, I think Meanders is probably a good word. It's got parts that slow down. Yeah, it's just like the pacing of the movie is yeah. really off to me. And, I mean, that being said, I think the climax is fantastic. The last half hour is just yeah. is so intense. But, yeah, definitely I just think visually the design elements, this was definitely Miyazaki announcing himself to the world as just a visual master. And just everything about it, uh, especially her flying machine and the, the yeah the glider, like the animation on the glider. There are a few sequences that are just incredible. The opening, like how they how they catch just like how the glider would actually move in the air yeah. is really impressive. Yep, and I think that opening scene where you're sort of introduced to the sea of decay and the mm-hmm. glider and Nasca and the masks they have to wear, all visually like without any dialogue, yeah. is fantastic. Um, really interesting stuff. I love all the characters again. Um, it's got a pretty interesting story. Though, as, I mean, as we said, you know, it has the meandering parts, but even then, I think there's a good forward momentum to the size of the story. Um, what I guess what would separate this one most from Mononoke is Mononoke is fairly earth-shattering in its events. This is like the stuff that goes down in Mononoke is as important as anything could happen in that fictional world. Yeah. And Nausicaa is a little more personal because at the end, nothing is really fixed. You know? Yeah. If, if anything... I, I mean, I, I guess, like, nothing's... I mean, like, the world isn't, like, it's not like they get rid of, like, the post-apocalyptic scenario right. at the end. But I think it's sort of implied that they kind of figured out maybe we shouldn't fuck with everything as much as right. we used to. But, but that's what's sort of interesting about it, is there is a omnipresent melancholy to it, even at the end, mm-hmm. where, yes, they figured out they shouldn't fight and everything, but the world's already still pretty fucked up. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's like at the end of The Road Warrior, it's not like yeah. everything's all happy again. It's yeah. like they still have to live... In these pretty terrible circumstances, but... Yeah. But uh, Nausicaa herself is one of my favorite Miyazaki protagonists. She's got so much energy. The voice actress who does her is is really great. I yeah. love the design. Um, it's just really fun to watch. I agree. I think one of my favorite design elements of it is that they have the all, like, the giant insect monsters. Yeah. And how the they... Omu. Yeah, and they, like, really contrast, like, visually. Like, they're really heavily detailed compared to how... Miyazaki generally draws his people aren't like he like hugely detailed. Yeah, and so it's like there's like this really strange like contrast between where like the like the monsters are almost drawn like they're part of the background in a way. Like it's like that's yeah. the level of detail that goes into them, and they almost see like they like the humans and the monsters feel like they're from two different productions. Yeah, it's, I find that really interesting. Well, and that's what I love about it, and I think it helps you get that emotional attachment to the Omu that Nasuka herself has. And you have to understand that motivation, and I think making them such visually awe-inspiring creatures helps that. You know? Yeah, it really bothered me that they kept on calling the Ohm uh, uh, insects. They were clearly mollusks. 
<laughs> Those were not insects. It really bugged me. This portion of the WGTC Radio podcast sponsored by Science. Yeah, I know this. Uh, then I do. I do love how they're they're called ohm, and there's it was spelled O H M like the unit for resistance, yeah. like in physics. It's just kind of interesting to. Yeah, I, I have no idea how why they pick the names. Like, I mean, the reason why I borrowed this DVD is because I'm I one of my favorite stories is the Odyssey, like Homer's the classic Odyssey, and there's one of the characters in the Odyssey is Nausicaa, who's like this princess in the land that Odysseus comes to, and that's where he tells his tale about flashbacks. Yeah. And so I was just, like, curious to pick it up and see. I don't know, do you know any background of, like, why he picked the name Nausicaa? If there was any significance, like, if Miyazaki... There, there is an essay on that in the book, and I don't remember the exact specifics of what he said, but it was something like the name fascinated him before he actually read the Odyssey, like, he heard the name first, and it captured his imagination. Yeah, and he, he had this other story he was working on, which became Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and... Uh, he's just sort of, he's like, that name should go with that story. And that's sort of when the protagonist of the story was born. Yeah, because it's actually interesting because Nausicaa is very, very similar to the Nausicaa of the yeah. of the Odyssey. It's just like, it's kind of like this weird little element where he kind of almost like transplanted this character out of the Odyssey and just put it into this post-apocalyptic we're fighting insects anime story. Yeah. It's like, it's really strange, but it's really cool. Definitely, I definitely agree. It's It's got a lot of cool stuff in it. Um... It, it also, to me, is interesting, again, talking about it as a first film, to see him introduce a lot of these themes that are omnipresent in his works about um, the younger generation paying for the sins of their forefathers. Yeah, they, they really pay in this film. Yes, they really do. I mean, this is, this is where it's arguably most extreme. There are also parts in Spirited Away where it's very overt, but uh, it really it's, that's one of the powerful parts of the movie. I think when he wants to talk about themes that big, he gets it across very meaningfully. Uh, and this is definitely one of those. So I'm really excited to be see it on the big screen. I have it on Blu-ray, and it's one of the most gorgeous Blu-rays I own. It looks so great, the animation. But on 35mm, I'm I'm psyched for this one. should be cool. So yep. did you listen to any of the dub? Uh, I th- That one, I think I listened to a few scenes. I remember, yeah, I, I, I listened to at least one scene with, I think it was the scene where she gets the, uh, like, lynx monster. Yeah. Like, fox squirrel, I think they called it. Yep. It's like it seemed okay to me, but it was. It, it's just like one of those things where it's always. It's just it always sounds off to me. Yeah. in those types of dubs. The um, I'll say this for the dub. I think it definitely sounds off. I like Alison Lohman as Nausicaa. That was yeah. a good approximation of the Japanese voice. She, yeah, she she was good. She's good. Everything else. I mean, Patrick Stewart's fine and everything, but he's one of those voices where he's too big to be in a Miyazaki movie. I'm sorry. His, yeah, I know his voice too well. It's like Liam Neeson in Ponyo does not fit. <laughs> yeah. And I love Liam Neeson. I love Patrick Stewart. But they, they, they're too big for this world where really they should sink into the parts. The parts shouldn't rise to them. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, it's uh, just like, I mean, yeah, I love Patrick Stewart, but it's, it's really weird. And then Sheila Booth's in this, and he's fucking annoying. Yeah, I, I, I deliver... Like, as soon as the character came on, I'm like, this is the character that's voiced by Sheila Booth. I'm going to... If I sample the dub, I'm not going to watch any scenes of this character, because... No. Yeah. I listened to one, and, like, had to run and throw up, and then switch it back. Because that's also... That's, like, that... All the stuff involving that character is where the movie starts to really drag to me, where it's, like, they get... In, like, she starts getting heavily involved with, like... Like, sort of almost, I mean, it's not, it's kind of like the, the Miyazaki romance thing where it's like, they're not really having a romance, but it's sort of kind of implied, and they have, like, this sort of, like, friendship, and they go off and do all that stuff, and then she gets to come back to the valley and deal with, like, the actual plot of the movie. And again, that's something they're going to handle so much better in Mononoke when you yeah. get around to that. But yeah. The other movie they're showing August 31st to September 6th is Iseo Takahata's Pom Poco, 
And I have not seen this one. It's one of the only ones I haven't seen. Takahata is sort of the other main master behind Studio Ghibli. He co-founded it with uh, Miyazaki. And this is his movie about tanuki folklore, which is raccoon folklore, which is a big part of Japanese so folk part history. Where, where Super Mario gets the tanuki suit? That would be really cool. So that's where I first learned about tanukis. Me too. <laughs> but I, I'm really excited to see it because it sounds like a really fascinating just look at sort of Japanese uh, you know, folk legends about tanuki. And I guess one of the things this movie is infamous for in the Western world is part of the tanuki legend in Japanese, this is always when, whenever you talk about tanuki, they have large, comically oversized testicle sacks. <laughs> and they, like, play with them and stuff. They oh, yeah. No, I yeah. do remember that. Yep. And so, in the Japanese version, they're just they're completely free-spirited about it. That's part of the movie. And I guess in the English dub, they changed it, every time they mentioned it, to pouches. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently they're marsupials now? Yeah, something like that. But, yeah, anyway, I'm excited to see it in its original Japanese and everything. Um... Uh, you know, I haven't seen it before, and there's a couple of these I haven't seen, and I'm really happy I get to see them for the first time in a theater, because that's always the best way to see a movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. So this one should be fun. I think I think it's an interesting choice to put it with Nausicaa, because you have sort of what looks like a more lighthearted movie with one of the more serious yeah, ones. Yeah, it's like the post-apocalyptic one. That's, but that can be a good, you know, double feature. I do like how they didn't touch that title at all. Yeah. Like, you look at, as an English person, you look at the title, it's like, I have no idea what that is. Yeah. I mean, they could have called it, like, Raccoon Fun Time, but... (laughs) Anyway. With pouches. Yep. So September 7th to 13th, I am so excited. Princess Mononoke, my fourth favorite film of all time. Hell yeah. It's gonna be great. What would you even say about this movie? Sean, you just watched it again. Yeah. And you love it, I know. Yeah, it's, it's it's a really... I mean, you can't, like, it's just, obviously, it's a really, really... Really good movie. Yeah. You cannot overstate. I mean, it's one of the few Miyazaki movies that is in contention for, like, the lists of greatest movies ever made. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Um, if you haven't heard of Princess Mononoke before, it's about, basically, this sort of alternate past Japan, where it's it's actually linked to a very specific time period in Japanese history, but with all these fantastical spirit elements in it. Mm-hmm. And the main character, Ashitaka, he's the prince of this village. He fights this, uh, like, wicked boar spirit. Or it's a good boar spirit, but it's it's been infected by hatred. And he's, in killing the boar spirit, he too is infected. His right arm is basically decaying, although it also gives him some powers. And he's sent out into the world to see with eyes unclouded, as they say, and sort of observe the world as a neutral third party and try to find a way to heal. And not just heal himself, but heal this very, very broken society. And he comes across this iron town where... And this is what's so fascinating about the movie, is that there are all, there's really no antagonist to it. There's people who are morally compromised, but they're not really evil. Yeah. And so in the iron town, it's led by this woman named Lady Aboshi, who she does some bad things, but she's just trying to make a good life for the people she's responsible to. Yeah. And, you know, the people there are very good people, they're very hardworking, but they're taking a lot from the land around them, particularly the forest. And so the forest spirits, particularly the wolf gods, are very angry, and it's basically brewing this war. And Ashitaka, as the neutral third party, must try to rectify this, and basically how he's going to do that is try to make uh, San, who is the titular Princess Mononoke, which we'll get into the epitomology of all that later, but she was raised by wolves, she she's loyal to the wolves and to the forest, and she wants to kill all the humans. And he's really trying to get her around to see the error of her ways and try to find a peaceful resolution to all this with him. 
And that's really just scratching the surface of what this movie is about. It is huge. It is, I would say, the only animated epic that's yeah. ever been made. And it is an epic in every sense of the word. Um, epic animation, so gorgeous at every turn. Big characters, giant cast of characters. A lot of big, stuff happens. Yeah, big fight scenes. Yeah, there's, there's just like, yeah, it's it's long, but it never slows down. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not. It, I mean, yeah, because it's, it's slow. Like it's like two and a half hours. Yeah, about. yeah. And there are obviously slower scenes because Miyazaki paces his movies very well. But it, it, but yeah, it, it never feels like it's long. It never meanders or anything. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's got one of the most beautiful scores in movie history. Joe Hisaishi's work on this movie is unparalleled. I've, I listen to this score all the time, and I have since I first saw the movie like ten years ago. It's fantastic. I've worn out the CD at this point. Um, and, but luckily digital versions will not wear out. So, (laughs) anyway. Um, Sean, I want you to start this discussion. So, Princess Okay. Okay, you just saw it again. What strikes you, I guess, most about this movie, or what do you want to talk about with it? I mean, it's like it is. It's just such a big movie, and this is a movie that I had seen. If you if you listen to our top ten best movies of all time, we talked about how I had seen it a very long time ago, and I remember really, really like it. Really affected me the first time I saw it, and so this is. And I, I I've only this is the second time I've ever seen the movie, and like the first time I saw it, I I, don't, I have no idea how old I was, but then this is would be the first time I actually saw it with the uh, the Japanese with actual subtitles on. Yeah, it's just like, it, it is just a really affecting movie, because I, I agree with you, they don't have any sort of villain in it, really. Yeah. It's re- it's a, it's about Ashitaka trying to, it, it, it reminds me a lot, actually, of Fritz Long's uh, Metropolis. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but it's about this, this character's trying to, instead of, it's, it's instead of a contrast of, like, sort of, like, the man and, like, machine-type world and, like, the nature, it's more of a sort of, like, the elite and, like, the downtrodden proletariat, but it's, yeah. like, the main character of the movie has to try to find a way to uh, bind the two together, and uh-huh. that's kind of like what Ashitaka does in this movie, where he's trying to figure out how can we reconcile sort of the, this, like, very disjointed and broken world between the people and the spirits and the forest and nature. Yeah, and it's, it to me, it's what, it, it and Spirited Away are the highlights of Miyazaki's career to me, because... They each contain just about every theme he's ever put in a movie, but all in one. And Mononoke, just really, when you're watching it, he's throwing out discussion after discussion about big issues about humanity mm-hmm. and our relation to nature and to each other and the nature of war and the nature of violence and the nature of love and of hatred and all these things. And none of it feels underserved. It's, yeah. They're all really well dis- like discussed and explored. And it's such a fascinating movie to watch, even as it's also incredibly thrilling and just entertaining. You know, it, it's one of those movies that achieves that perfect balance between being edge-of-your-seat entertainment and really profound art. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and just like, and yeah, all the animation obviously is really, really great, and all the the character designs, particularly on the spirits, and like the uh, when the the boar spirits become corrupt, yeah, just like the just like a really striking visual design with like sort of like the yeah. s- like tentacly like sludge yeah. that comes out of them. It's just yeah, it's really incredible. And Princess Mononoke is one of those movies that just has scene after scene after scene that I can never forget. They're just so big and ingrained in my cinematic memory. My favorite in the movie is probably the prolonged, like, 25-minute scene in the middle where San invades Iron Town and yeah. Ashitaka has to stop her and the villagers. He completely destroys his body doing this. He's taken back to the forest. You know, he's he's sort of healed, but he's... like he, And there's that beautiful scene where he's lying out on, like, the stone like, outcropping, and it's just at night, and the Mononoke theme song is playing in the back, and it's so 
beautifully sad, and he's just explaining, I know I'm going to die, but I have to do this before I go. I have to fix this. And it's like, it's just such a beautiful scene. And then there's other big ones, like the boars running the humans, even though they know they're all going to die. Yeah. Um, just so many great scenes like that. And it's a tremendously violent movie, I yeah, think, it's, too. It's, it's, I mean, I, I did not remember... How how violent of a movie! Yeah. I mean, I might have seen the censored version. I I've, I've no idea because it's been so long. But yeah, it's really violent. It's really violent. And and I should say this: if you're like a parent who wants to take your kids to some of these movies, this is not the one. This is yeah. I was this is very adult. It's, yeah, I mean, there's like I mean because I I remember because it's it. I think it's like the when he he like after he leaves the town, it's like it and he encounters these samurai or like ronin or whoever they are then they're like attacking this village yeah and it's like there's like the first like really violent thing that happens it's sort of like kind of in the background but like i saw like a dude gets his heart arm chopped off with the naginata and it's like a two second shot and i was like and it's really far away it's like in the background i'm like did that did that just happen and then the next thing that happens is that uh, ashitaka takes out his bow shoots an arrow hits a dude's sword and both of his arms come off I'm like <laughs> Oh, okay. It's 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 this violent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I did see a dude just get his arm chopped off of the Nakanata. Yeah. All right. And and most of the stuff when Ashitaka will like dismember people yeah. is because his arm is so strong he can't control it yet. Yeah. Um. One of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's one of the coolest like action beats of all time. Is when he's riding on Yakul to go warn Iron Town and the samurai come to find him. He jumps off Yakul. It's all one extended shot of animation. He jumps off Yakul, strings his bow and arrow, gets an arrow out and fires it and like kills two people with one thing. Yeah. And it's all one like suave shot. It's so great. Yeah. That's another thing I really like about this movie is that they he he doesn't. This is like just something that bugs me. In that if you actually have a bow that's like made of wood, you cannot keep your bow strung up constantly because that would just ruin the bow. It would ruin yeah. the tension in the wood. And that's like something if you play video games or movies and there's anyone with bows, they just have their bow strung up constantly. And this is one where he actually he like he actually has to string up his bow in a lot of scenes because he unstrings it. This is like thank you for understanding that. That yep. bugs me all the time. It's like you're ruining your bow. Well, that's one of those details where Miyazaki is so detail oriented. He yeah. has to get that right. Um, we haven't talked about San much, but she's a fan, just fantastic character, really yeah. fascinating. And you know, this to me epitomizes the Miyazaki relationship of platonic love where I don't think San can experience romance with another human being. I think that's one of the ideas behind her yeah. character. But she does learn to love Ashitaka on what I see as a more meaningful level, where she has limitless respect for him, he has limitless respect for her, and at the end of the movie they decide, we're going to work together to make this world better. Yeah, they basically just like, I'm going to go hang out with humans, you go in the forest, and we'll hang out sometime. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's how the movie ends. Yep. And it ends on an optimistic note, but it's one that is earned because what they have to go through to reach that note is so fucking intense. Yeah, and even and even though it ends on an optimistic note, it's it's kind of like with Nausicaa, where it's like, they kind of solve the very the present issue, but it's not like, you know, everything's okay now. Again, we still have some stuff right. to work through. And I guess what I mean by optimistic is that it, it, it circles back around to that yeah. theme of the next generation has to learn to be strong enough to fix what the prior one has messed up. And and they have learned that, and they've taken that to heart, and so you know one day down the line things will be okay, because these two have learned that message. Mm -hmm. um, but boy, the last act of this movie gets insane, doesn't it? Yeah, it just gets it just gets ridiculous. I had, com I had actually completely forgotten the... Uh, 
like the entire last act after the deer god gets its head cut off. Yeah. I had forgotten what happened after that. It gets so, insane. Yeah, so when it got to that point, I'm like, holy shit, I don't remember this part of the movie. Yep. Oh, it's nuts. It's it, But it's so great. Uh, again, this is the kind of movie we could devote a whole podcast to, and maybe we will sometime. Yeah. Because there are definitely more things we yeah, there's a lot. About. I mean, there's a lot of really sort of like subtle... Like, I, I, it's like, there's something that I hadn't caught the first time. It was all, like, sort of, like, the behind-the-scenes sort of, like, political machinations that go around where you... They don't, like... The only other, like, human faction that... They, they showed, like, two other human factions besides the, like, Iron Town with, like, there's, like, the Emperor's dudes and then, like, that other sort of, like, tri... Or clan of, like, Samurai with, like, the Shogun. It's, but it's, like, they, they get into, like, some actual, like, kind of interesting background political stuff to, like, yeah. sort of... So you kind of understand, you know, either the humans are... Like, the Iron Townies, yes, they're, like, kind of, like, taking all the, like, all this iron, and they're destroying the forest and stuff, but they're being attacked by other humans, too. Like, everyone's in a shitty situation in this movie. Yes. And so that's why, like, that's what something that's really interesting is trying to, looking at Ashitaka, trying to figure out what he's going to do, because everyone's fucking each other over, because everyone's being fucked yeah. in the movie. Like, that's just how it right. kind of goes. Uh, I mean, I think this movie was definitely Miyazaki and all his collaborators just kicking their art into a higher gear, mm-hmm. and you can see that transition beautifully into Spirited Away, where they're maintaining that level of precision in their craft and their storytelling, um, but it's really interesting. The other movie they're pairing with Mononoke this weekend, the 7th to the 13th, is Ocean Waves. This is one that has never been seen in America before. It's never been licensed by anyone. It's never been released here. Um, as I understand it, it's like an 80-minute movie that um, was actually commissioned for television originally, and it was Miyazaki and Takahata's effort to sort of get the younger staff members at Ghibli working on stuff. I guess this was in the 90s. It's sort of that same kind of film as Whisper of the Heart, where it's just set in real life. Um, I've heard really good things about it. I've obviously never been able to see it, because it's not available in America. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to see this. This is like the third time it's ever been shown in the United States. So that should be pretty cool. Yeah. So that's Ocean Waves. Maybe maybe uh, that podcast week we'll talk about it, if I've seen it, and we can mention it. Um, the other thing I want to mention, September 7th is going to be the greatest fucking movie weekend ever, because not only are they showing Mononoke here in Denver, Raiders of the Lost Ark is going to be on IMAX that week, in a yeah, new restoration. That. Yeah. That's going to be awesome. We're not talking about Raiders today, but that's going to be fun when they do that. Anyway, September 14th to 20th is, they're only showing one movie that week, and you can guess which movie it is if they're devoting a whole week to one movie. It's going to be Spirited Away. That's his most well-known movie in the States. Um, for good reason. It's a fant- it's it's fantastic. Yeah. I, I saw it the other night, actually, because to kick off this whole festival, they showed Spirited Away at Film on the Rocks. And if you don't know what Film on the Rocks is, we have this wonderful amphitheater in Denver called Red Rocks. It's basically the reason why Colorado is the coolest state in the Union. Because Red Rocks is this beautiful auditorium amphitheater in just the, in the Rocky Mountains. It's so gorgeous. It's got unbelievably good acoustics because they're all natural acoustics bouncing off these giant red rocks, as the name implies. And over the summer, the Denver Film Society actually shows movies there, and it's a really cool event. Um, I went to Spirited Away with a friend, and it was just such a great night. 
And I, I sort of, my love for this movie was sort of reignited watching it that way. This was, again, they had a 35mm print, and it was, it, it, watching Miyazaki on 35mm is unbelievable because the level of detail, you just, you cannot see it on DVD. You cannot see the vivid nature of the colors. Even Blu-ray doesn't replicate it this well. So it was really neat, and to have it with those perfect acoustics, and have moments where you could see these beautiful shots, and then look to your right, and you've got the beautiful red rocks, and the beautiful mountains, and the Denver landscape and everything... It was really neat, so I'm excited to revisit it, too, but um, Spirited Away doesn't need a whole lot of introduction, I'm guessing, because most people have probably seen it at this point, mm-hmm. but just as some background, it was made in 2001, um, it was actually pulled Miyazaki out of retirement, because he retired after Mononoke, he actually retired because Yoshifumi Kondo died, and he was worried for his own health and safety after the arduous production of Mononoke, but he had this idea for Spirited Away, it pulled him out of retirement for good reason, um, and it concerns this 10-year-old girl, Chihiro, who is moving to a new city with her parents. Her parents take this detour on the way there. They visit sort of this old temple amusement park thing. It's been ravaged sort of by pollution and stuff, which becomes a big theme of the movie. And her parents sort of gorge on this meal that's been put out. They, there's no one there to serve it, though, and Chihiro's trying to urge them, come on, let's leave, let's leave. They don't. They get turned into pigs, which is a recurring theme in Miyazaki movies. <laughs> That they get turned into pigs, and Chihiro is swept away to the spirit world of this bathhouse, which is one of the coolest movie worlds of all time. It's so detailed, there's so many characters, it's so neat. And she basically has to learn to be strong in this very scary world if she has if she wants to get back to her parents and to reality again. Um, I, I, want, I definitely want to talk about this one, but I want to ask you, Sean, have you seen this, and what's your reaction to it? Uh, I have seen it. I've only seen the dubbed version, and honestly, it didn't make a huge impression on me, so I don't okay. particularly remember it that well. I bet if you watched it again, you would really love it. Yeah, probably. I mean, it's just like... Yeah. Kinda, it's, I think I saw it, like, maybe four years ago. Yeah. And I just like, I, I didn't, do... like, really affect me in any way. I remember it being good, but it wasn't, like... Princess okay. Mononoke, where it's like, this okay. is like the, one of the most amazing movies I've seen. Uh, I definitely think Spirited Away is on that same level as Mononoke. Actually, after seeing it again this time, I kind of wish I had put it in place of Totoro at number 10 on my favorite movie spot, but, you know, it's okay. Totoro's great, too. This one, it, it actually shares a lot of what we were talking about with Mononoke, where it's it's not an epic in that same sense, because it's not telling the story of like a whole nation, mm-hmm. but it's, it's another, you know, like two and a half hour long one. It's so much happens, but it never really fe- it never feels long for a second. It really moves by really fast, but with a lot of good slow moments and lots of really pure emotion. Um, it's often called Miyazaki's masterpiece, and it's definitely his most acclaimed film in the Western world. And I, you know, I think it's very easy to see why. Again, it just it combines every theme he's ever talked about because by being in this bathhouse and being in the spirit world, it allows him to comment on sort of how far humanity has gotten away, not necessarily from spirituality, but from what those things in Japanese culture represent, and sort of not respecting the spirits of, you know, the rivers, and the and the trees, and the forests, and those sorts of things, and Shiro sort of ha- Chihiro sort of has to learn to do that in this world, uh, and we're, we're only going to scratch the surface, because this is a movie that seriously you could do a commentary on, and not even get close to analyzing everything that's in it, but, you know, it, it talks about how much sort of that's been ravaged by humanity. But then it also gets into that the spirits themselves are corrupt. And that there's just... Stuff is wrong, and it's messed up, and that I think the ultimate metaphor is that Chihiro as this young, innocent girl, this is the world she's inheriting. And it's a world that's messed up on every possible angle. And 
she's innocent, though, and if she can use her own innocence to affect change and just be good and try to find ways to live in this world and make it better, the world itself could become better and her life will become better for it. And I think that's sort of how the movie boils down. There's... Yeah, and I, I that's sort of the thematic stuff. Just as a movie, it's it. I think it's his most beautiful movie visually, easily. It's so lavish. It looks so gorgeous. The bathhouse itself is just impossibly detailed. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we're talking about the Omu mm-hmm. in in uh, Nausicaa and stuff. Yeah. That level of detail and that background stuff, that's everything in Spirited Away. The character designs are a little more simplistic as they usually are. But even then, I mean, there are some characters that just, you look at them, some of the spirit designs, and it's like, how did someone animate that on a timetable you do for animation, you know? That Mm -hmm. looks like something that a normal artist would have spent a year doing just a painting of. Um, And it's all over this movie. It's so wonderfully paced, where basically the first 30 minutes are just completely intense, balls to the wall, this spirit world transition and Chihiro being swept up into this fantastical world where that's very dangerous and scary. And then it calms down. And when it calms down, that's when he lets the emotions just boil over. So like, you know, Chihiro's lost her parents. She's lost everything she's ever known. And when she like cries about this for the first time, it is a gut punch. And I remember at film on the rocks, we had a bit of a chatty audience. And in the first scene where she just kind of breaks down after seeing her parents as pigs, when she's taken back to see them, the, the whole 2,000, you know, strong audience was completely silent. It's one of those moments that just completely controls the audience. But then there's these big set pieces like the purging of the river god that is just such a great example of controlled... It's not action, but sort of, you know, intensity. Um, and there's a bunch of those like that. It's a great movie. It's got so many great characters. Um, but, you know, you probably already know that. It's it's a beloved movie for good reason. I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. It's It and Mononoke are probably the two that are most often discussed in those kinds of lists mm-hmm. of sort of the greatest ever made, and they are, I believe, his masterpieces. I think they're on pretty even footing. But um, do you have anything else to say about it? No, really. Like I said, it's just like when yeah. I saw it, it didn't really affect yeah. me in any okay. huge way. Well, you should try to see it again. In fact, if you can do it on the big screen, I think that'll be the way to see it. This should be cool. They're showing it in Japanese that week. I saw the dub at Film on the Rocks. They had to do that because I assumed there were just more kids there and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, I'd always hated the dub because I saw the dub as a kid and it like annoyed me. And so I've always watched it in Japanese. And I watched, watching the dub again, I actually really liked it. It's it's one of their better dubs because it doesn't have any celebrity casting. Oh, it's, yeah, it's good. Um, it, the, the voices all just really fit to me. The girl who voices Chihiro, who's Davia Chase, she can be a little shrill at times but not in a way that betrays what the character is about. It's not like Dakota Fanning being sassy in Totoro. She's mm-hmm. still very much Chihiro, even though her voice goes very high and pitchy when she shouts. Um, and other than that, I mean, the only thing that annoys me in the dub is the main male character is voiced by Max from Goof Troop, and that is the, <laughs> that is the stupidest voice decision I've ever heard. It's awful. He's He does not fit the character at all. Other than that, it's a good dub. This <laughs> is like I just I just like that Max from Goof Troop. Yep. I, I don't know what that actor's name is, but I hear him a lot, and he'll always be Max from Goof Troop because yeah. I always wanted to punch Max from Goof Troop in the <laughs> face. Ah, stupid Max from Goof Troop. Anyway, so that's Spirited Away. Uh, I'm excited to see it in Japanese again on the big screen. Um, it's going to be great. So see it if you can. It's a brand new 35 millimeter print of one of the most visually gorgeous films ever made. So excited about that. September 21st to 27th includes a movie that Sean has seen. Yes. Porco Rosso. This is a weird... Yes. This is a really weird movie. (laughs) It's a great one, though. Um, 
So Porco Rosso was the movie he made before Mononoke in the early 90s. And it's a weird transition going from Porco Rosso to Mononoke. Yeah. They're very different movies. They're different, but at the same time, I think there's an evolution into more adult discussions, because Porco Rosso is a much more adult movie. Yeah, it's not, like, Porco Rosso is not a kid's movie. No, all. it's not. But Porco Rosso, if you don't, you probably don't know, it's one of his more obscure films, which it shouldn't be, it's really great, but because it's not marketable to kids, you know, there's not yeah. as much out there about it. Um, Porco Rosso is sort of a fighter pilot in post-World War One, where the world, in, in Italy, where the world is sort of transitioning into fascism, or Italy is at least, and he's resisted fascism. And sort of for that, it's never, he has, he's been transformed into a pig, is sort of the crux of his character. It's never exactly explained how, but sort of the implication is that by resisting sort of the societal trends and trying to remain independent, he was turned into a pig. And he's fine with that because he wants to keep away from fascism. And he wants to try to keep some level of purity here, even though he's become very cynical. Mm-hmm. And he's a fascinating character. I think he's really an interesting one. He's really the only adult male protagonist in the yeah. Ghibli canon. And I, I don't know who the guy is that voices him in the Japanese, but... He's awesome. He's awesome. He yep. sounds so fucking cool. He's basically like the Japanese equivalent of Harrison Ford or something. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's, re- it's just... It's, it's that a, archetype. Yeah, it's... Really, it's a really great performance. Yeah, and uh, when we talk about animation again, I mean, just the way all the planes move in this movie and are built—it's phenomenal to watch. Yeah, it's just like there's something where he's able to really capture. It's it's like with Nausicaa, where it's like he understands. It's like when you see it, it's like it just feels right. It's like that's how a plane moves. Yeah, it's not like really fantastical. It's like the plane is really it's banking. It feels like it's moving with the wind instead yeah. of because these are also these these are like World War One era fighter planes, so they're not like the like really great planes. Right. So it's like you kind of get this sense that it's like well, with they're that, barely t- like puckering through the air at sometimes. And that's actually where I want to start. This is actually with the first scene of the movie. It's such a great setup. It's where such it's a just, weird scene because he goes. Is, are you talking about the one where he, he goes and, like, like the pirates are holding up, like, the yeah. boat with, like, the, the little the, like the swim team of, like, ten-year-old girls? Yeah. And then he well, goes, rescues them? It's, like, this really... Because it's, like, the movie's kind of a comedy, but that's, like, the opening scene is, like, the only one that's, like, overtly for, like, jokes. Yeah. I wouldn't like, say the movie's a comedy. It's got a lot of comedy. Well, yeah, but, but it's, like, I mean, I would say it's, like, it's got a comedic t- type of tone yeah, to yeah. me. But it's, like, it's, it's not... I mean, I'm not saying it's, like... But I think what I, was actually, Bowski, but. Right. what I was actually going to talk about with the first scene, though, is it is funny, but to me it's just there's this awe-inspiring element to it where it starts very small, he's just on his island, he's lounging, he gets the call to go save these girls, he's very reluctant to do it, he gets in, and then the Joe Hisaishi score kicks in, it's what we started this podcast with, it's big, it's sweeping, he gets in the plane, and just watching him go about a normal mission is fantastic because the way he has to move this plane and how mm-hmm. there's all these maneuvers he has to do because of the limitations of his aircraft. Mm-hmm. And it's just all really, really cool to watch, even as it's there's some funny and sort of over-the-top elements yeah. to it. Um, but I really like that. And I, I there are, you're, you're right, I mean, there's a lot of funny stuff. The the Englishman who, or no, the American. It's yeah, like, the American. Who's like this awful who, American. I'm totally with you. He looked like he was supposed to be British to me. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why he was American, because he looked British. As far as I know, Hayao Miyazaki had never visited America at this point in his career, so maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. He's just like, because yeah. he, he looked exactly like every... British person in any other anime that would have a British person in it. Right. Looks. But anyway, the American guy's a dick, and he leads, like, this group of pirates. <laughs> the Mama Awito. Yeah. And 
It's it's really cool. It's got a sort of it's kind of interesting because it's got this Italian touch to it. Yeah. Um, like I could I would like to hear an Italian dub of this movie someday. Like that would be kind of interesting. That that, that would be pretty interesting. Even though I love the Japanese voices are so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's mostly just about Porco sort of dealing with various sort of character flaws he has. And while this movie can be very lighthearted and comedic, the darker elements to it are really dark and really in-depth, and I really like them. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is he befriends this this young girl who kind of goes on his missions with him, mm-hmm. and one night she asks him, you know, what happened to you, and he sort of kicks back. It's beautifully animated. He's, like, smoking a cigarette, and he just starts telling the story of when a friend of his died flying, yeah. and then one of, this is one of my favorite visuals in all of Ghibli's canon. He's it's this vision he has of him flying and all his friends in his fleet fly up and away into heaven and he's left behind. Yeah, and that is to me that is such a staggeringly beautiful moment. Yeah, it's it's like it's the best scene in the movie. Too, yeah, because yeah, it's like is that that's the pain he's living. Yeah, with. that's the first time you like Procorosis. He's really honest with someone else. Yeah, like this is like for the rest of the, for the rest of the movie he's kind of really standoffish with everyone. Yeah, and that's the only time he's really kind of just like saying what he's feeling at that moment. Yep, and I think. You know, again, tonally, I think it balances tone so well where there's so many fun elements to it, but there's also, again, a melancholy to it that I, that really hits me. Like, one of the first scenes after he rescues the girls, this this uh, woman he loves, she's at this bar singing this sort of beautiful Italian song, and as she's singing it, there's this just visual of him flying across the sunset, and it gets just sort of this melancholy mm-hmm. for sort of a world going away, and... Um, yeah, and, and then the characters and relationships are so good. Like, his relationship with that woman he's sort of in love with. Yeah. But not completely. It's sort of... It, it's, it's, again, sort of a Harrison Ford kind of thing. Yeah. It's, where he's messed it up with this woman. He's never going to fix it. But she still allows him to be around. You know? Yeah, it's just like... Like, the whole production, it really feels... Other than, like, a few elements... Like, some of the more comedic elements feel very much like a Japanese anime production. But, like, the core of the movie doesn't feel like it was it's a Japanese movie to me at all like because yeah. because it's set in Italy and it's set in like that yeah. like the setting and the style of it is very much a sort of like a western like I actually it feels like a post World War Two movie yeah. like a lot of like the sort of like film noir movies that came out right after World War Two like uh, the Third Man it's like it's just got that kind of melancholy to it that's that's really affecting and it's really interesting yeah. having that sort of contrasted with the anime style. Yep. And that's what I love about it. It's it's so different from anything else Miyazaki has done. And it's also one of his most personal projects, as I understand it. There's a lot of elements that he considers autobiographical, and you can actually see that if you sort of read about his life and his opinions on things. Definitely the idea of Porco being a man who has sort of isolated himself just from working so hard at his craft, but also not wanting to be swept up in the bad things that happen to society. Um, That's something that Miyazaki writes about a lot. And I think it's really interesting. He's talked about actually doing a sequel to Porco Rosso one day. Yeah, I read about that. And this is the only movie in the Ghibli canon I think could have one that would be really good. Yeah, it would be it would be interesting to see what he would do if he made a sequel of it. He has he says he wants to call it Porco Rosso: The Last Sortie, and it would be set with the actual time gap. It would be like twenty five years later. Porco would be an older man, and I think that older would be pig possibly. Yeah, They'd leave it a little ambiguous at the end of the movie. Right, that's the only thing that sort of that makes me doubt about a sequel is that you would have to ruin yeah. the ambiguity of the ending. But obviously, he's never made a sequel before. If he was going to do it, it would not be for commercial reasons or anything. Yeah. It's because he has an idea. Um, 
But he says now that he's an older man himself, he just finds himself circling back to the ideas from Porco Rosso. So that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, so that's Porco Rosso. Great movie. Yeah, yeah I, it's, it's a really it's a really odd one, but it's it's really interesting. Yeah, so I definitely recommend seeing it. The other movie, September twenty first to the twenty seventh, is My Neighbors the Yamadas. This is another one I've never seen, but I actually do own the DVD. Oh, oh the DVD cover looks really. Yeah, it's it's another strange. It's another Iseo Takahata one, and this is definitely considered like the strangest in the Ghibli canon. I've read about it, and it's. Um, <laughs> Basically, like the font on the DVD cover, it's like the Simpsons font for yeah. the, the title. It's really, well, it's, really it's actually often compared to The Simpsons. I guess it's like a satirical comedy movie, and it's actually done like a comic strip because it's based on a comic strip, so the movie is like a series of four to five minute vignettes and comedy sort of routines and stuff. Hmm. Um, I've heard mixed things about it. Some people just don't like the style of it. It's very stylized. I mean, you can look at some of the pictures on it. It's not detailed drawings at all. Yeah, I mean, it looks then, like a comic strip. Right, and then some people really like that it was just something so different and and just fun. So I'm going to see it when it you know comes to the festival and, and see it on the big screen and see if it's good and we'll talk about it then I think. But um, yeah, it, it's I'm you know I'm glad they're showing it. Yeah, so part sure. of the collection. All right, the last week uh, is September 28th to October 4th. They are showing Howl's Moving Castle, Ponyo, and Only Yesterday, which is another Takahata film, one of the ones that's considered sort of one of his masterpieces. But anyway. Um, what I should say about House Moving Castle and Ponyo first is they're both being shown dubbed, and that's because the main festival the Denver Film Center is showing was put together by this company, G-Kids, who sub-licensed everything from Disney and got new prints made from Studio Ghibli. But they only did it up to, I think, the year like 2003 or four in terms of when the movies were made, so they did not include in that festival package House Moving Castle and Ponyo, so the Denver Film Center, just to complete the, the sort of festival, has gotten these prints from Disney, and Disney never made subtitled prints of them. Yeah, so okay. I'm glad they've added them anyway, because I love mm-hmm. those movies. Uh, have you seen House Moving Castle? Maybe. I don't know. You don't I, can't, I can't remember. Okay. It's one of those well, ones like, I might have seen it. Okay. It's sound, it, I feel like I've seen it, because it's... I, I have this impression that I've seen it, but I don't remember. Yeah, it's it's uh, the story is is fairly simple until it gets unnecessarily complex, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it starts with there's this again. It's a it's a girl who feels out of place. Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, it's this girl named Sophie. She's 18, and she's the oldest daughter. So she has to sort of. It, it's again. It's a very Japanese, but also Western idea because this was based on a British book that because she's the eldest, she has to inherit the shop that her parents run, and it's this hat shop. And so she sort of has no ambition in life, and she feels very trapped. And what happens to her is she accidentally offends the Wicked Witch of the Waste, who lives out sort of beyond the town. And this is sort of, I should say, is set in almost like an 1800s kind of aesthetic. It's, it's not real world at all, but it sort of has those elements of 1800s, like Germany and Britain and things. Mm-hmm. But the Wicked Witch of Waste puts a curse on Sophie, making her into an old woman. And as that an old woman... Yeah, it does suck for her. So she sort of ventures out. She, she sort of escapes the town because she thinks people won't know her or anything. So she ventures out, and she sees this giant moving castle, which is sort of a legend in the town, but you can see the moving castle here on the image, Sean. It's it's called a castle, but it's more of a hodgepodge. Yeah, that does look like a castle. Yeah, it's a fascinating visual creation, though. But anyway, it's run by the wizard Howl, who is said in the village to be like an evil wizard who steals women's hearts and stuff. Um, But she goes in anyway. She wants to see what this Howl guy is up to, and she sort of becomes part of Howl's little sort of family of oddballs, and they have adventures, and 
Eventually, a lot of weird stuff happens. Howl's Moving Castle, I'll say up front, is my easily my least favorite of Hayao Miyazaki's films. It has a lot of great ideas, and it's his only movie where I don't think they all congeal right. It's like, it stands out so blatantly to me because all his movies are so meticulously crafted and everything seems to be right in place and the narratives always make sense and they flow well. And then House Moving Castle, the last hour of it, is somewhat incomprehensible and meandering. Uh, it's got a lot of great things in it. I know a lot of people really love this movie and I can see why. The animation is fantastic. The characters are really interesting. There's a lot of great visual elements and sort of story elements, but they do not congeal as sort of a cohesive whole. And that's sort of the problem with the movie. It's still worth seeing, especially on the big screen, because the imagery is so fantastic. And it's got one of the better dubs. It was sadly in that period where they were transitioning into doing just celebrity voices. So you've got like Christian Bale doing Howl. And, um, is he doing his Batman voice? That a little would, bit. That would be amazing. <laughs> a little bit. He, I mean, Christian Bale always has some rasp to it. Yeah. But it's got uh, Billy Crystal as the fire spirit that lives in the castle. That's kind of weird. It is weird. Um, there, there are some good celebrity voices here. Like, I think Gene Simmons does Old Sophie, and she's really good. Um, but, you know, other than that, I mean, there are some problems. I actually think one of my favorite things is Young Sophie is voiced by Emily Mortimer, and she's great, and I wish they could have found a way to have her do the old voice too, because in Japanese, one actress voices both characters, old and young Sophie, and I actually think that makes more sense than doing two different actresses. Um, but, you know, whatever. It's a it's a good dub. It's very accurate. There's nothing... Like, you won't miss anything, like, context-wise watching it. It's just the voices aren't as good. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a good movie. It's not a great one. It's the only... Miyazaki movie, I think, that has significant, like, flaws I can point out and say, like, that's really something that holds the movie back. Like, even when we were talking about Nausicaa, we weren't saying, like, these are giant, like, those are big reservations. Yeah, it's, it's just, like, it's just, like, it's, like, the, most movies have that kind of flaw. Yeah. It's, like, this part of the movie really needed to be trimmed down a little bit. Yeah. It's, like, almost every movie has the kind of moments. It's only, like, the best, like, Princess Mononoke doesn't really have something like that in it because yeah. it's, like, one of the best movies ever made. Yeah. So, but still, House Moving Castles we're seeing... Um, anyway, the next movie is Ponyo. Have you seen that? I've seen the Nostalgia Critic review of it. That's okay. my only I exposure to Ponyo. I hate that Nostalgia Critic review because he's incredibly unfair to the movie because he's judging the dub. That is the worst of the dubs, and half of what he's making fun of is the dub and blaming Miyazaki for it. I hate that review. It's He, he just does Feels not... Feels like how it. I feel about his review of Conan the Barbarian. Okay. Which is an amazing movie. Yes. Um, anyway, let me see if... Ponyo is an incredible film. It's it's just so much fun. It's Ponyo gets a bad rap in America, I think, because let's see, the Miyazaki sort of theatrical presentations started in the late '90s with Mononoke over here. That's obviously an adult movie. Spirited Away to a degree is for older kids and adults. Yeah, Howl's Moving Castle is for older kids and adults. Ponyo is made for little kids, and there's nothing wrong with that. Many of yeah, Miyazaki's like Ponyo's like a Totoro one, yeah, not a Mononoke right. one. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that, but a lot of Americans don't even know he used to make movies like that. And Ponyo is very much in the spirit of Totoro or Kiki or something, where it's very lighthearted, but it has, you know, melancholy elements to it mm -hmm. that work really well. It's a very simple story. It's uh, this boy, Satsuke. No, Satsuke is... It's Sasuke. Satsuke is Totoro. Sasuke yeah. is... You cut out the T and you know, Sasuke is Naruto. Okay. Now you're getting, you're getting every, all your anime mixed up now. No, it is Sasuke, but he's a he's boy, little boy. He lives with his mom, and his dad's always out at sea, and that's sort of where the sadness of the movie comes from. But Ponyo, who is this, she's sort of this daughter of this underwater 
god sort of being, um, Fujimoto, uh, who's really cool. He's got this really cool design and everything. And she escapes because she wants to just see what's out there. And so she goes to the human world. She sort of gets a human form. And she's the same age as Sasuke. And they befriend each other. And, and sort of they have some adventures. And because Ponyo is out of the sea, sort of the sea spirits get out of line and there's sort of big floods and hurricanes and they have to fix it all and sort of it's the power of love that heals it. Again, it's platonic love, just that Sasuke and Ponyo are good friends and that's how the the movie ends. It's a very charming story. It is visually one of my favorite Miyazaki movies. It was drawn, sort of after Howl's Moving Castle, he decided Ghibli would no longer use computers and I think that was a fantastic choice because... While Howl's Moving Castle has a lot of great visuals, what holds it back to me is that it was digitally colored, I think. Oh. And yeah. it doesn't look bad, because it was still, they did it very meticulously, mm-hmm. but hand coloring works much better to me, and Ponyo was completely done by hand. There was no computer touch-up on any of the movie, and it is fantastic. Actually, Sean, after this podcast, I'd like to show you just the first scene, because it's completely, it's got no dialogue. It's just Hisaishi's score, which is actually very reminiscent of, like, Tchaikovsky scores and stuff. Mm-hmm. Tchaikovsky didn't write scores, Tchaikovsky symphonies and ballets, and just sort of this underwater ballad that's going on. Um, Really interesting. Um, Ponyo's got a lot of great things to it. I mean, it is not necessarily, you know, it's not as deep as something like Mononoke, but that's not the ambition behind it, and I, I will never knock the movie for that. Yeah. And it's, it is, it, it, it's the same thing as Totoro, where if you make a movie for kids that is pure in emotion and really well made. Anyone can enjoy it. That's what Ponyo is. Great film. If you haven't seen it, I don't know if I would recommend seeing it at this festival because it's dubbed. And let's talk about the dub for a moment. It was a fucking train wreck. And I usually, even if I don't like the Disney dubs, I don't hate them or anything. They're just Mm -hmm. like not for me, you know? Yeah. This is a train wreck. It's two little kids as the main characters. And they hired, let's see, Miley Cyrus's little sister... As that's weird. As Ponyo, or no, Miley Cyrus's little brother as Sasuke, okay. and um, Frankie Jonas as Ponyo. Okay. And so there's these little kids, and they were just hired because they're your siblings of Disney Channel stars, okay. the, the yeah. Jonas Brothers and Miley Cyrus, and they had never acted before. They clearly had never read a script before because every line reading is either wooden or they're like mispronouncing words or something. It's awful. They they do not know how to act, and that's yeah, not. It's like it's like the celebrity dub, like yeah. taken to the absolute extreme. Yes, and I mean, geez, the other voices in it, like they have Liam Neeson voicing Fujimoto Ponyo's father, which is just based on the, <laughs> on the review that I saw. Yeah, it's just like just. It looks, it just seems so bizarre. Well, Fujimoto's design, it's a very archetypical Japanese, like, crazy person design. And and the voice he has in Japanese is perfect for that. It's sort of a little high-pitched, but still very regal. Liam Neeson is deep and regal, (laughs) and it's wrong. I mean, Liam Neeson is Liam Neeson. Yeah. So it's like, it just so does not fit. No. Like, I don't think Liam Neeson just can't voice a character in an anime. No. Like, his voice just does not work in an anime world. And there are other problems, like Tina Fey is the mother, and... It's one of those things, though, where Tina Fey can't be Tina Fey in this role, so why do you have her? Because Tina Fey's wonderful. Yeah. She's very funny. She's so talented. But this is not the role that lets her be Tina Fey, so she just sort of has to be bland and generic, and she can't put anything into the character, and so that character just comes across as flat. Yeah. Or you don't really understand her. In Japanese, you really get an empathy for her, where she's a single mother. Well, she's not single. Her husband's just always at sea, and she's just she's always very busy, and she's just struggling to get by, and it's a really great character. Um, 
And then, like, Kate Blanchett is Fujimoto's, like, wife thing, who's just, like, giant water spirit. And that's actually okay, because Kate Blanchett has the right kind of regal voice for that, but it's still distracting when I hear Galadriel coming out of an anime yeah. character. So, there's problems like that. It's an awful dub. I'm going to see it anyway, because I, I want to see it on the big screen again, because the visuals are so good. I may bring headphones and listen to it in Japanese. So. Okay. Yep. Anyway, that's Ponyo. Good movie. Um, it's also actually, I was going to say, it's one of the ones that's available on Blu-ray, because it's newer. If you have a Blu-ray player, you owe it to yourself to have Ponyo on Blu-ray. It's probably the most gorgeous Blu-ray I own, because it was, you know, it was just made and put on Blu-ray, and so these hand-drawn animations in high def, it's out of this world. So great. So definitely recommend Ponyo. The final film they're showing that weekend is Only Yesterday. This is another one I haven't seen because, it's again, it's never been available in America. It's never been released on DVD or even VHS or anything. It was one of Iseo Takahata's films. It's another 90s one where they were just dealing with real-world issues. As I understand it, it's a story of a girl who sort of revisits her hometown, and the whole movie is sort of a series of flashbacks where she analyzes things that happened to her as a little girl that influenced who she became as a woman. And I guess it's really fantastic. Like, a lot of people say it's it, it would be Takahata's masterpiece if it weren't for Grave of the Fireflies, which is his other masterpiece, which they're not showing at this festival because it's not... It's a Ghibli film, but it wasn't produced by Tokuma Shoten, so they can't... It's a whole licensing issue. Mm. But um, it's too bad they can't show Grave of the Fireflies because, oh boy, good movie. Anyway, so I'm excited to see Only Yesterday for the first time. Uh, it's, again, one of the only times it's ever been screened in America, so it's pretty special that they're doing it. Cool. And I hope, I, you know, G-Kids has sub-licensed it. I hope they put a DVD out of it in Ocean's Wa- Ocean Waves. I, it would sell, I imagine. There's yeah, enough, it, ha- it has to. Yeah, there's enough crazy Miyazaki fans. Yeah. And if you don't bother with a dub, you save a bunch of money. Just put it out subtitled, you know. Or you can just, like, you can just hire actual voice actors so you big. don't have to pay the big bucks to get Liam Neeson to do right. a voice. That's what I just... That just doesn't make any... God, like, what, what kid's going to go to see Ponyo because Liam Neeson's in it? Like, it's just, that just doesn't make sense. Well, I kind of feel for Disney because I think what happened is, you know, their first big push they ever made with a, with a dub was Spirited Away. And while that was critically successful, it was not a commercial success in America. And I think... So they tried again with Howl's Moving Castle, where they're like, well, maybe if we put celebrities in it this time, it'll do better. And on home video, they were doing the dubs with Nausicaa and Porco Rosso, where they were hiring people like Michael Keaton and Patrick Stewart and mm-hmm. stuff. And they're thinking, maybe if Americans see actors they know, they'll, they won't be so scared of anime. And it never really panned out. And so I can't blame them for pushing further and further into celebrities, because they just... They've tried everything to sell these movies to Americans, and Americans will not go see them. And that... That speaks more to American audiences than it does to the efforts of Disney. I respect Disney for trying to put these out in the first place. Yeah. And I feel bad that they haven't succeeded. Like, it broke my heart that Arietti did not... It came in, like, sixth place when it opened earlier this year. Because that actually had a beautiful dub. One of the best dubs I've ever heard for anything. It's a beautiful movie. Still my favorite movie of 2012. And people, were, more parents were taking their kids to see Journey 2 than they did to Ghibli's new Arietti movie. It's like, that blew my mind. But, you see, if you can't sell... If Americans are unwilling to watch hand-drawn Japanese animation, they're just unwilling to do it. Yeah, it's just like, it's just like a cultural thing that's hard to, yeah. hard to sell. Yep. But, at that point, I would say, then stop it with the celebrity casting. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Try to, try to get a good dub out there, and that's yeah. more likely or, going to get it to sell. Yeah. What I would say, actually... What I would say at this point is that these are obviously niche movies... Just release them subtitled in Japanese to, like, art house theaters. I think it would do better that way. 
like do a yeah, no. roadshow release and and just start in some cities, build it up, um, or at least like like you said, just like just do a small DVD release of just a subtitled version in yeah. America and sell it for twenty bucks. And it's like you, you're not going to have to do a whole lot for it, and there are people who are going to buy it, yeah, who, who know about it, yep. yeah. So anyway, that is the. Ghibli Festival that's going to happen at the Denver Film Center these next couple weeks. I'm so, I am really have never been this excited for anything film-related, because I've only seen one or two of these on the big screen, and I've never seen them in probably you know this pristine quality we're going to be able to see, or in Japanese even. So this is really exciting. We're one of the only cities in America to have gotten this so far. I'm really happy that Denver gets to do this, and I've got my festival pass ready, it's over on my desk, I've, like, taken all these flyers from the Denver Film Center just to, like, look at them and, like, salivate at. Okay, that's going too far. You've gone too far now. I've, I've carved a Totoro logo into my chest in blood, it's just, it's great. Just kidding. Just are you are you going to like get like like paint up your car to look like the creepy <laughs> cat, cat bus? spider bus? <laughs> I should do that with my drive up. Yeah. I should do that with my parents' minivan because it's got big doors you can just open up. <laughs> and then like just paint this huge creepy smile on the front. And I would have it like I would put a speaker on top playing the dun 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 music yeah. from Totoro. <laughs> on that creepy note, yeah, we'll uh, we'll see you next week. Oh, I should say. You should you say? Uh, Doctor Who's season premiere was just screened for press last week, so it's got to be premiering soon. Huh? So we're going to be talking a lot about Doctor Who coming up on this podcast, so do your Doctor Who research if, you're, if you haven't seen recent episodes or something, because we're going to talk about some of them. I imagine we'll start doing a little bit of that next week, but we'll see. There's a lot to talk about coming up, um, lots of topics in the coming months uh, that we're really excited about, so stay tuned. Stay tuned.